that is primary, it is contemplation. Now we could turn to many different biblical places to make this point. We could compare Mary and Martha. As you know, Martha is busy while Mary is sitting in Jesus' feet. Jesus seems to think Mary has chosen the better part. Or think of Leah and Rachel. Leah is busy every year, another little one sitting on her lap. Rachel, by contrast, is there. Leah stands for the active life, Rachel for the contemplative life. But Leah's eyes don't sparkle. It is Rachel's eyes that capture Jacob's heart. Oh, finally, take Peter and John. Peter is always on the go. I'm off fishing, says Peter, right after Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus has died, Peter isn't hanging around. He's got things to do. But John, well, he's different. He reclines at table at the bosom of Jesus taking in his master's mystical words. And you know, John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. We could compare Martha and Mary, Leah and Rachel, Peter and John. But I want to go somewhere else with you this morning. I want to go with you to the foot of the mountain. Mark chapter 9. It is a moment of greatest distress and anguish. The spirit had screamed aloud. The boy was violently tossed to the ground. 
his mouth foaming, his teeth grinding away. His body had convulsed, writhed, then turned rigid. Everybody thinks he is dead. This is the moment of no return. This is where it all ends. Most of them said he is dead. But then, Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. An astounding moment of action. Jesus is doing something. He is changing the world. This is where action happens. Despair gives way to hope. Death makes room for life. Grief turns into joy. All because Jesus took him by the hand. I imagine being the boy's father. I tried bringing him to Jesus, but it was not to be. Jesus was gone up on the mountain with three of his disciples. One of them, Peter again, so caught up in his vision that when he saw Jesus transfigured, he suggested this tent. Meanwhile, where I was, at the bottom of the mountain, the disciples were unable to help. They gave no thought to my pain, my fear, my anguish, my distress. Instead, they let themselves be baited into some theological argument with scribes who taunted them for being unable to heal my son. We, my son and I, were left standing on the side. That's how it began. But it all changed when Jesus, who had just shown Peter, James, and John his resurrection life, his clothes radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them, came down. Heard the demon bit, and then saw me. I stepped forward, offered my prayer to him, saying, Teacher, I brought my son to you. Then, after I had some back and forth with Jesus, he took my boy by the hand and pretty much literally raised him from the dead. How did this father react to the healing of his son? The amazing thing is, we don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. Elf, it is as though the father's reaction is utterly inconsequential. There is not a word 
about his thoughts, emotions, expressions, nothing at all. Instead, as soon as the boy is healed, Mars lens zooms away from the intimate scene of Jesus taking the boy with a hand to an in-house, private setting of Jesus with the disciples. Lord, why could we not cast it out? Why is it that Mark turns our attention away from the dad as if completely forgetting his fears and afflictions and asks us instead to focus on the disciples and their Lord, why could we not cast it out? The reason is a simple and straightforward one. Though it may not be a pleasant one for us to hear. At the very end of this story, the disciples and their question take center stage because at this point it is you and I and our question that takes center stage. Lord, why could we not cast out? Not only the disciples' question, it is yours and mine. Why is it you and I cannot do the things that Jesus does? That is the question that dominates the story from beginning to end. That's what the theological argument between the disciples and the scribes is all about. And that is what the Father reported to Jesus. They were not able, he said in verse 18. So now that Jesus has done what they could not, now that the boy has been healed, good and proper, it is time to resolve the theological debate. Why could we not cast it out? My hunch is the Father knows the answer. He knows why it is Jesus was able to do what the disciples could not. How does he know? Let's think a little more deeply about this man, about who he is. He doesn't have a name. He is one of the crowd. Perhaps the saddest part of the story is not even the boy being tormented by his unclean spirit. Perhaps it is instead the disciples and scribes arguing back and forth about why the disciples can't exercise the spirit. They're having an abstract argument while the boy and his dad are standing on the side, left in the cold in the heat of the argument. Oh, faithless generation. That's Jesus' commentary, both about the scribes and about the disciples. Oh, faithless generation, 
It's a fearful denunciation. I deserve because disciples and scribes alike fail to grasp what life with God is all about. They fail to see that people are broken and hurt. Remember when Jesus fed the crowds, hungry crowds, chapter 6? He saw a great crowd and had compassion on them because they were a sheep without a shepherd. Same chapter 8. Again, there's nothing to eat. I have compassion on the crowd, says Jesus. In our passage, one of the crowd shows up at the foot of the mountain. And he offers up a prayer to Jesus. If you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. This is a stunning moment. I know his prayer is not perfect. Because his faith is not perfect, Jesus even chides him, right? If you can, all things are possible for him who believes. The man recognizes the weakness of his faith. I believe, help my unbelief. Despite all this weakness, we should pause at this amazing prayer. If you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. This man, one of the crowd, knows that he and his boy play need compassion. Only compassion is able to help. They need someone to take them by the hand. What they need is someone to act. The disciples. And lost themselves in an abstract debate with scribes about what it is or why it is that they could not cast out an evil spirit. It's not that the question is wrong. Why could we not cast it out? It's a vital question to ask. It's just that they're unable to answer it because they don't recognize that this question can be answered only by looking at the character of God. The boy's father, his prayer may be clumsy, it's very weak. Boy's father, from the outset, recognizes what it takes to heal his boy. If you can do anything, have compassion on us. It is precisely because he has been brought so low, because he is suffering such distress and anguish that he knows with the psalmist, only God's compassion, only God's mercy is able to deliver his Lord, to loosen his bonds. The reason the disciples cannot cast it out is because they lack the character of Jesus. They're like the people 
people James chastises for mistreating the poor. Mercy, says James, triumphs over judgment. Mercy, compassion, speaks to the very heart of who God is. God, you could almost say, speaking reverently, feels in his gut compassion for one of the crowd. For James's guy with shabby clothing, for the boy riding on the ground. Compassion is his name. Two stories are side by side. First, the story of the transfiguration. Jesus on top of the mountain, transfigured before the three disciples, his clothes radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Then, the story of Jesus healing the boy, the unclean spirit. And the puzzling question that it raises for us is this. Why could we not cast it out? The two stories are like Martha and Mary. Mary and Martha, rather. Two, sto two stories are like Rachel and Leah, and like John and Peter. Contemplation happens on top of the mountain, action at the bottom. Moses, you remember from the book of Exodus, was on top of the mountain. There he shines with the very glory of God's compassion. The Lord passes by him, proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When Moses comes down the mountain, his face is still shining with glory, his ears are still ringing with mercy. God's glory is his mercy, his compassion. When Jesus comes down the mountain, he too comes with the glory and mercy of God. Jesus is able to help because his name is the mercy of God. Disciples cannot help because well, they're lacking the mercy of God. They have not spent time on the mountain with God. There is nothing wrong with being active. Jesus is active. He's the one casting out the voice demon. It's not that action is wrong. It's just that action is second. You first need to be on the mountain. Only then can you come down and do things. Believers are people who are either going up the mountain in contemplation or coming down the mountain in action.
Jesus tells us plainly, this kind cannot be driven out by anything except prayer. Only if our face still shines in the presence of God can we do the acts of the mercy of God. The Father's prayer to Jesus may be a bumbling prayer. It should be no anything, have compassion on us. His faith may be a wavering faith. I believe, help my unbelief. But Jesus hears his prayer and he sees his faith. And so out of the depth of his compassion, Jesus rekindles hope, restores life, and renews joy. St. Mark doesn't tell us Father's reaction to the Santino. But if it is true that the dad has just seen something of the glory of the transfigured Lord, if it is true that he has been touched and changed by the mercy of God, and if it is true that he has seen Jesus take his son by the hand and raise him up, then I imagine he must have burst out in song with Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Friends, I know you want to be the hands of Jesus. Taking the boy and lifting him up. I'm not against action. I'm certainly not against compassion and healing. The only question is will you be able to heal? For true action is possible only for those who have first contemplated. 